everyone. Welcome to News and Brews, our weekly to the point video series to discuss developments related to the coronavirus pandemic and other emerging issues in college athletics. As a reminder, I'm Katie Davis, the leader of the James Moore Collegiate Athletics team, and I'm joined by my partner, Ken Kurtzel. Um, we're very excited to continue featuring financial voices from the industry. And joining us for the discussion this afternoon is Marvin Lewis. He's the Associate AD for Administration and Finance for Georgia Tech Athletic Association. Hey, Marvin. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, before we jump into Q&A today, I wanted to share this photograph, um, which I first saw on Twitter a couple weeks ago. Marvin, can you uh, tell me a little bit about the history of this photo? Yeah, it's pretty pretty cool photo, um, and I think it had impact on on a lot of people. Um, I've seen it on uh, SI.com and a couple of other media outlets, but um, internally, we had an alum that sent us a picture from 1918, and the picture was of a number of fans in our football stadium all wearing masks. Uh, I don't know if the term social distancing was around at that time, but um, it was right during the uh, Spanish flu uh, era. And there were over 600,000 uh, Americans that passed away during that time. And it was also the tail end of World War One. And so it, the, the imagery spoke a lot to the fact that, you know, even in the midst of the Spanish flu, World War One, uh, football and community was so important and important enough to where we had a, a, a crowd full of fans with masks on. And so we actually had our president, uh, when the alum sent it to us, we forwarded it to our president, he tweeted it out. And internally, we talked to our coaches and staff about mm. what that image meant to all of us. And, and really it was a symbol of hope that you know we've gone through something like this before, um, Georgia Tech specifically, was a leader during that time and, and, and helping the morale of the community and the nation. And uh, we kind of took that honor on or taking that honor on again and, and really galvanizing our staffs and coaches that we will get through this and we'll get through it together. Yeah, no, I think it's an awesome symbol to show that maybe times aren't so unprecedented after all. And, um, you know, it does give hope that things will hopefully start to uh, come back to normal, whatever that new normal looks like. But um, thank you for sharing that with us. I think it's really cool. Yeah. Um, but um, now, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, you know, people talk about history repeating itself. Um, obviously, it's not exactly the same. But but again, we can learn from that time and and again, come together as a as a community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's. That's really great. Um, for my first real question, um, so tell us about uh, the current capital campaign that Georgia Tech Athletics is running and how COVID-19 pandemic impacted the campaign. Well, well first I'll say, um, you know, how COVID-19 has impacted the campaign is still to be determined. Mm -hmm. um, for those that, that don't know, uh, we started a, we call it the Athletic Initiative 2020. And it was a, a three-year fundraising campaign that started uh, in January of 2018. Uh, the goal was to raise $125 million in a three-year period, which uh, at the time when we put the goals um, out there, we realized that that would require us to have the three best fundraising years we've ever had. 
And, and we knew that with our new athletic director coming on board, Todd Stansberry, um, he's an alum, played football here. Um, and, and myself, I played men's basketball at Georgia Tech. Um, we knew that the Georgia Tech community would support uh, this initiative. Uh, of the $125 million that we're trying to raise, 90 of it is going towards facilities and capital projects. Uh, another 25 million is earmarked for scholarships and another 10 million was earmarked for current operations. And I was excited uh, earlier this year to be able to announce, or we were excited to, to announce that we exceeded that $125 million goal. Um, again, going back to the you know two years prior, uh, we had record setting years with fundraising with over $50 million raised in each of those previous two years. And we were on pace to exceed uh, those records. And then COVID-19 hits. Um, and, and I would tell you that we paused in the month of April, um, trying to be sensitive and empathetic to donors and all the various stakeholders that are out there and, and what everybody was going through. So strategically, we, we just paused and spent most of the time connecting, you know, calling our donors, making sure that they're safe, their families are doing well, but more importantly, just trying to make sure that they're, they know that there's a connection to Georgia Tech and if they needed anything, we were available. Um, but now going into May, we're transitioning into really evaluating, you know, what should the next steps be related to this capital campaign? Um, June, the month of June is usually a very um, active month uh, because it's the end of our fiscal year. Our fiscal year ends June 30. And so we traditionally receive a lot of gifts um, in the month of June during, during uh, years past. And so right now our development office is strategizing on how to approach uh, the month of June. And I think that's when we'll really be able to see whether or not COVID-19 has, has truly impacted uh, our ability to raise funds. Um, only other piece I would add is that we have a history of philanthropy here at Georgia Tech. We don't have a large alumni base, but those that are supporters and investors in our program, they do it at a, at a large level. And, and obviously that's been seen over the past couple of years, but we think that even though there might be some donors that you know are waiting to see what happens in the market or waiting to see when we return to competition, we also know that there's gonna be a group that wants to step up and help us during this time. Um, and especially dealing with, you know, our student athletes and their education. And so we're, we're still very cautiously optimistic about you know, what the next few months will look like post COVID-19. Yeah, and that's great. And it's nice to hear that you're still engaging with uh, your donors and your fans. And I know they're all wondering the same questions that all fans are wondering about, you know, what's it going to look like um, this fall? Um, so are there any strategies you're employing specific to what um, you know, return to sports looks like uh, for your fan base and your ticket holders, or um, are you mostly just checking on them and letting them know more more holistically about, you know, here's where we are and, and we care about you and, and that, that type of information? For the most part, it, it's the latter. It, it's just trying to connect um, and, and communicate as much as we know. And, and right now, there's not much to, to communicate in terms of what the future is going to hold. Again, we're optimistic that students will be back on campus this fall. We'll be competing 
um, in football and other fall sports um, as scheduled. So we're, we're hopeful there. But I think the priority for us has been, you know, how do we stay connected with our ticket holders? How do we stay empathetic to what they might be experiencing? And, and, and we've done a number of different initiatives. So one, our, our, our outbound ticket sales team, they've reached out to a large number of season ticket holders, again, just to check in, make sure everyone's well, but also we've started sending out emails that have quote unquote, stay at home packs. So for anybody that's on a Zoom call, you can have a Georgia Tech background. Um, for folks that have kids at home, we've uh, sent home, um, you know, coloring books and different documents so that folks can entertain their children. Um, so we've tried to do things like that to, again, be a, a key part of this community and, and to let folks know that we're, we're caring about them and we want to stay connected any way uh, we can. I think we're no different than many of our other peers that we know that the fan relationship is a long-term relationship. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to make sure that we're not focusing on the transaction right now, but focusing on the relationship. And hopefully yeah. over time, our fans and, and ticket holders will remember the days of you know, COVID-19 and, and that Georgia Tech reached out and, and really tried to support them during this tough time. I love that. I love the, the terminology you use. We're not focused on the transaction, we're focused on the relationship. And I think that's so important. Um, and that's you know a lot of the spirit behind why we're doing this um, news and brews and putting other information out there as well is that we just really care about the well-being of everybody and um, making sure that um, everyone's doing the best that they can and has as as well informed as they can be to help um, them grow and thrive as well as best as they can. Um, but um, back to specific to capital campaigns, Ken, um, from what you see in working with college athletics and also working with Georgia Tech. Um, what other stakeholders do you think um, are important to have involved for a more holistic approach to capital campaigns? Yeah, very good question. One of the key factors that we've seen both at Georgia Tech as well as at other schools that go through these capital campaigns is that typically the donors, uh, the donors get excited for the project. They're, they're, you know, there's a lot of momentum at the beginning. But then um, they really want to see the shovels hit the ground and they want action uh, before you can kind of get over that final hurdle of getting the final phase of the fundraising done. Uh, so that really means engaging bondholders, too, because so typically even in a capital campaign where you fully fund the facilities, what we have typically seen is some level of debt service that occurs uh, during that time period also. So. So going out to market for bonds, and, and that's quite an intense process. Uh, you know, so it typically involves you know, getting good bond counsel. It helps walk you through it. Um, we as auditors end up spending a lot of time talking to bond counsel about um, the different projects that are being funded through, the, uh, through that bond issuance, um, you know, kind of what the life of uh, the, the, the various facilities improvements are looking like uh, so that they line up well with the maturity dates on the principal, um, looking at how the fundraising is going to line up with uh, the payback, because obviously, typically what you'll see is um, some bullet maturities, some large balances due in certain years that hopefully line up well with receipts on pledge payments, because uh, in all of these capital campaigns, uh, the largest dollar amounts, you get some pretty large ones that come in initially and straight in cash, but you also have significant pledges receivable. So 
Um, it's kind of a whole bit of a balancing game between uh, the debt and the pledge payments and the cash that you have and kind of getting, trying to get the whole project rolling so that you have got um, the fan base excited for it and willing to, to help pay for it. Um, that you're going to have the revenues from either increased ticket sales that might come along that those bondholders are going to expect as typically a, a pledge against the bond and um, really that you're going to get the comfort of the uh, the debt markets so that when you're issuing this that you get good ratings uh, which lead to lower interest rates which lead to more sustainable debt service payments so it's is definitely definitely a balancing act between uh, bondholders uh, between donors and between fans and then uh, the association itself and that's not even to mention the coaches uh, <laughs> who are probably the most anxious to actually see the project get going. Right um, so Marvin what kind of strategies are you employing at Georgia Tech with your debt holders to manage the debt service requirements um, specifically during this time? Yeah I think it's it's can hit it hit the nail on the head in terms of it's a balancing act and there's so many various, various stakeholders we got to connect with. And so my approach thus far has been to communicate and be as transparent as possible and, and try to be proactive with that communication. Mm -hmm. So, you know, once we got the announcement that, you know, spring sports weren't going to be competing, uh, the NCAA tournament was going to be canceled um, shortly thereafter, you know, after focusing on getting our students uh, home safely, uh, we transitioned to the financial impact that the, that was going to have. And one of my first calls, set of calls were to our banking partners. Um, one, just talking through, you know, our current debt structure, but also letting them know of our financial situation. And, and again, being transparent and seeing if they could help. Um, mm -hmm. So not just telling them that we have issues, but, you know, how can they help us during these trying times? And so, uh, that's been that was like the first set of conversations. And then from there, um, I even had conversations with our uh, rating agencies and, and they wanted to check in to see how the relationship with the Institute um, and the Georgia Tech Foundation, how we all were working together to manage uh, the pandemic. And so that was another set of conversations that we had. And then lastly, bringing it back in house and, and Ken, you mentioned it. Um, bond council, legal council that are on campus. Um, I call it the bond team that we have um, because we just went through a, a bond refinancing back in August of 2019. Um, I, you bring the team together and, and talk through, you know, what does the future hold? And so we've also had conversations about how can we capitalize on the low interest rates right now and, and potentially help impact the community by moving forward with some of our capital projects because um, mm -hmm. if you can get those financed i mean we're thinking about our edge rice building which is a 70 million dollar project if we can get that approved by the board and get that moving um, that helps the community that helps the city of atlanta that puts people back to work um, so we're also looking at you know how we can finance some of those projects in the short term to really get things moving and, and as ken mentioned our coaches are itching um, and especially when they're at home and they're not coaching, yeah. uh, they, they're asking a lot of questions about what we're doing every day. <laughs> and so uh, being able to communicate to them that we're still uh, trying to move projects forward and, and identifying uh, financing strategies is, has been very positive so that they know we're still working for them. All right. mm -hmm. 
Um, and, you know, with, with Georgia Tech Athletics, you're in a unique position in that you are a separate athletic association and you're not the only one in the country. There are several, but a majority of um, athletics programs are departments within their um, institution. And Ken, from your experience working with various um, programs that are both within athletic associations and also separate departments, um, what differences do you see in strategy setting as it relates to raising funds through capital campaigns and debt financing? Yeah, it's a very good question. Yeah, the setup of being an association versus a department is very different. Uh, it's, I'll call it unusual in the sense that, like you mentioned, Katie, there are other associations throughout the country, uh, many of which we've gotten the chance to work with. Um, but it is still the minority setup. Uh, the, the majority are set up as departments. Um, one thing that you have to be prepared for as an association is that really by definition, your your finances are even more transparent uh, than they would be if you were a department. Uh, department, uh, we know, of course, we've talked about the, um, the fact that the NCAA has a financial reporting system that looks at revenues and expenses of every school uh, and has certain categorization of that. Um, so all schools report on that, but what's missing from that for the majority of schools is information on their balance sheet, on their assets, liabilities, uh, net position or net assets, depending on what type of entity it is. So as an association, as Georgia Tech is, all of that is out there for the world to see. Uh, so from a standpoint of fundraising and a standpoint of um, debt issuances, you're really going, instead of just kind of looking at the university financial statements um, with looking at the revenue pieces for athletics as a department would when they try to raise debt, an association has a whole much more transparent set of financial statements that they're putting out there. So, um, and it's also just really an extra layer because even with that, you have to go through the process of getting your own board, uh, those that have governance over the association to, uh, to approve any debt issuance then it's, that doesn't stop then. It typically then goes into the university or the in Georgia Tech's case, the institute system. There's approvals at that layer. And then, then there's probably approvals for most states at the state university system layer also. So it's definitely a multi-layer process. Um, and it's one that when you're an association, it probably has one extra layer and, and a little bit more transparency. And then one not something I've heard um, or had happen at Georgia Tech that I've heard this, although Todd Stansbury may have faced it, but heard from another athletic director at an association, the challenge that he faced when raising funds and having financial statements out there that showed a fairly healthy balance sheet, pretty good reserves, uh, strong financial statements, um, it can raise into question, okay, do you really need these funds? Do you need my $10 million? Um, so, you know, that can come into play too. Again, that transparency of the financial information in an association just kind of, kind of adds an, an extra layer where there, where more communication is necessary to address the fact that there's more information out there. Yeah, I mean, you need the narrative to go around the numbers to explain right. the purpose and the difference yeah. and, and why additional funding is needed. As we um, say, tell the story. Yeah, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you have more transparency maybe for your bondholders so that exactly. they don't have as many questions and it's a lot more clear for them to make a decision too, hopefully. Right. Um, no, that's that's all a really good point. And, you know, as we talk about comparing athletic programs and different types, um, we know there's a, a huge disparity in budgets um, in collegiate athletics as a whole. Um, and typically what's focused on is there's Power Five and there's everybody else. 
Um, however, we know that even within the per perspective of Power 5 schools, um, that there are huge differences in budgets that schools operate under. And Marvin, um, what are some things that um, and ways that you are looking to level the playing field at Georgia Tech um, when you're competing with other schools within the ACC or the Southeast region of the US or the state of Georgia even um, that have larger budgets? Well, you just named kind of our, our neighborhood, so to speak. And, and we like to say that we live in the toughest neighborhood in the country. Um, because when you look at, you know, 200 mile radius, you have University of Georgia, you have Clemson, you have Alabama, um, but not just those institutions, but you also have the city of Atlanta and we're competing for the entertainment dollar with, you know, the Braves, the Falcons, the Hawks, Atlanta United. Um, so it's, it's definitely challenging. Um, but what I would, would tell you is to, to, to close the gap or, or at least to find our own footing we focus on our assets and and what we feel as as though we have strengths in and so first and foremost you know being an athletic association and ken you you referenced it that some of that transparency can be a plus or a minus but from a business perspective um being an athletic association allows us to be very nimble and, and creative with how we do business um within the athletic or intercollegiate athletic space. So I think that's one positive that having an athletic association and being able to be efficient with our resources, but also creative um, is a positive. I think the institution itself is, is one of the assets that we um, try to capitalize on. You know, our athletic director talks about it all the time that we got some of the smartest people in the world on this campus. And some of them are 18 to 22 years old. And so how can we partner with the institution to create the next Gatorade or create the next thing in intercollegiate athletics um, that could truly make an impact and that obviously we can monetize. And then the last thing is just capitalizing on Atlanta and, and the fact that, you know, mentioning Clemson and Alabama and University of Georgia, the thing that they don't have is a major metropolitan area to capitalize on. So we've done many partnerships with um, some of the entities in and around Atlanta. We have a five-year um, football deal to where we're, we're having one or hosting one game each year at Mercedes-Benz, uh, knowing that that's gonna generate some additional revenue as well as help with recruiting. Um, we've had concerts in Bobby Dodd Stadium. So back in 2015, we hosted the Rolling Stones. Uh, prior to the pandemic, we were scheduled to have BTS, and I don't know if you know who that is, um, but they're a Korean pop group. They were supposed to uh, host a concert here as well as Guns N' Roses. We had them scheduled for August. And so, you know, those are the types of things that we try to capitalize on to quote unquote close the gap between some of our competition. Um, we know that we will never be Clemson or never be Alabama when it comes to having a 90 to 100,000 seat stadium. But what we can do is have strategic partnerships in the city and be innovative and, and, and try to capitalize on the institution as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, I like that, you know, each school I feel like is unique. And even though they're kind of all put in the same bucket, they all have their own unique challenges and also uh, unique strengths. And so it's 
identifying where there's opportunities to overcome challenges by using your strengths. And that's that's how you make a real uh, robust strategy that you can execute and move forward with. Exactly. Uh, so that's great. Mm -hmm. um, so Ken, from your perspective as the audit partner for Georgia Tech Athletics, um, what do you think is unique to Georgia Tech and that sets them apart from other programs that you've worked with? Well, I think Marvin hit a lot of those on the head. Um, one of the things that was apparent the first time I stepped foot on Georgia Tech's campus to uh, work with the Athletic Association was just, um, one, the pride in the academics of what the Institute represents. I mean, it really is one of the top academic institutions in the Southeast. I remember um, a predecessor to Marvin telling me at that time, he's like, at Georgia Tech, there are no easy majors. There's no... <laughs> Uh, there is no simple major that, it, you know, from a student athlete perspective, they're never going to just come there with the thought that, oh, hey, I'm here to be, I'm here to play football or basketball or baseball or whatever sport it might be and um, be wholly focused on that. And the academics really don't matter. That's not the type of uh, student athlete that Georgia Tech has because that's not the type of uni university that the Institute is. Um, again, that that pride in the fact that, hey, we, we only have challenging majors, um, you know, really. Yeah, Ken, to that point, I mean, and, and just so folks know, 80% of our student athletes are in business or engineering. Yeah. And there's not many places Amazing. that can speak to that. That's no. excellent. <laughs> now, and Marvin's a testament to that himself. As an ex-student athlete, uh, you know, a fam um, famous for being on a Final Four team on the uh, on the basketball team as a guard. Um, and, you know, he his major was accounting, uh, which is another fun thing. It's, you know, um, we get to work with uh, a CFO who actually really, really knows his stuff in the, uh, the financial accounting area. So that's uh, that's a unique perspective. Um, and then, you know, they've just got this. There's a real sense of pride uh, that, that burns throughout the association. You've got a, an athletic director who is also an alum, played uh played intercollegiate athletics there as well, in, in addition to Marvin being in that role. So there is a heavy, heavy focus at Georgia Tech on the, the whole person. And again, they have even have, and they back that up with this total person program that they have that's unique. I mean, I think every every school would say, hey, we care about our student athletes' well-being. And I believe that they all will mean, really mean that. But at Georgia Tech, it's really backed up too by a really unique program in this total person program that's built off of a, a vision that Homer Rice, one of the early pioneers of Georgia Tech athletics, uh, had to really take care of their student athletes uh, well beyond the playing field, um, you know, making them well-rounded individuals to be successful in life. So you see that, I mean, that, that pride really comes through clear. And I think that gets back to what Marvin was referring to, that they've got a strong uh, alumni base. It's not a large alumni base, but it's a really strong one that has had a great success in life, have made you know some amazing companies, some unbelievable entrepreneurs that have raised uh, large dollars and then have been very generous with those dollars back to the Institute. So they have a very successful foundation and, uh, and some, some large endowments um, that they're, they're fortunate to have that do kind of help level that playing field when you're comparing, uh, say, with the Clemsons of the world within the ACC. So um, it's, a, it's a unique place um, with a lot of pride in their place, and it's fun to work with them. Yeah, and I know I've heard Ken come back and he's actually texted me pictures before of um, he, he got lucky to sit in, in Todd's office one day while he was there for a meeting mm -hmm. and was like, you would love this. There's this huge whiteboard and all this strategic stuff written on it. And he shared with me how collaborative even Marvin that you are with Todd and kind of taking those brain dumps that are literally 
written on the walls and, um, you know, working with that and moving it forward. So, you know, it's really cool that you have that kind of collaboration and how Marvin, how has that day to day type engagement with your AD changed as a result of COVID-19? Well, I don't I don't think the engagement has changed. I, I would just say it's it's intensified. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you reference Ken's visit and and I know, you know, Todd has the whiteboard with all the ideas and, and strategies and, and and that's what he's amazing at. He's a visionary. And I feel like it's my job to help execute that vision. Mm-hmm. And and so right now, you know, we've shifted somewhat to, you know, focus on the task at hand, which was getting our student athletes home safely and now trying to manage, you know, post pandemic, what will things look like? And I would say through all the various conference meetings, national meetings, internal meetings um, with our staff and coaches, I just find that the communication has intensified. Um, after every ACC meeting that, our, that Todd has, um, I'm getting a text with some updates, you know, anything that's happening that might have a financial impact. Um, he's leaning on me to come up with recommendations for how we manage um, the next 12 to 18 months. Um, so I, I think, again, I don't think it's changed. I just think it's intensified knowing that there's so many things to discuss, so many scenarios to put together. And, and I, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day and, and you know, when the economy's strong and you're, you're fundraising, your teams are great, you know, that's when you really rely on your fundraisers to capitalize on some of that momentum. But right now, this is when CFOs truly make their mark. Mm-hmm. And, and being great advisors for their athletic directors or their CEOs, as well as, you know, really being a voice um, within your department on how to to continue to be successful, even in the midst of financial challenge. So um, I've been excited to have an opportunity even in the midst of maybe not the best scenario, but the opportunity to step up and, and communicate with the AD on a regular basis and, and actually be a Uh, I'm always a leader in the department, but I think everyone's looking at me now um, on how we can manage this. And and that's a unique position that CFOs usually aren't in, Mm -hmm. um, but one that I take on and and I appreciate because, again, you know, this is the time for us to step up and and be leaders um, through this pandemic. Mm -hmm. No, you are absolutely right. And it's something that I've been preaching and I wish the CFOs had the same um, position all the time, even in the good times too, because there are other strategies and approaches you can have other than marketing and, and you know, relationships and, and you know, developing and all of that, that there's, there's other things. But I, you are right now is the time where, um, you know, those financial minds can really shine and, and be strategic in a different way. And, and I think that's really important. And I think you're doing an awesome job and, um, and so thankful that we got to hear that voice from you today. Mm-hmm. Um, one more question for you both in the spirit of news and brews. We um, also like to differentiate ourselves and share a little bit about what we like to do um, after hours. And it's almost that time now. So um, w- would you like to share with me what you're um, enjoying today for happy hour? Um, Marvin, we'll start with you. Well, right now I'm enjoying some high <laughs> quality water. Um, but when I get home and, and, you know, different than most is that I never really garnered the taste for beer. 
Um, so I went right to the hard stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so my drink of choice right now is is bourbon, and and as soon as I get home, I'll have you know bourbon with a nice um, cube ball. And yeah. my, my my bourbon of choice right now is Elijah Craig. So that that's what I'll be drinking when I get home. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ken, how about you? Very good. So I am drinking. Uh, we've been trying to drink uh, local here lately, just to kind of support during uh, the pandemic. So I'm drinking uh, Swamphead is one of our local beers. Um, they're known for Big Nose, uh, which is one of their core offerings. This one is a a little unique. It's it's Big Nose with grapefruit added. Uh, so it's it's Big Nose kicked up a notch. I I like Big Nose well relatively well enough. Uh, the big nose grapefruit's much better though. Actually, I, I, I like this even more. I, I'll, I'll give it a 4.25 in my rating scale. So, yeah. So Ken and I always rate beers on a scale of zero to five. Um, I'm the type of person that, um, like, unless I hate it, it gets at least a four. <laughs> <laughs> She's a baby grader. That's good. As long as it does the job. <laughs> yes. Um, and so that's good to hear, though, that you gave it that rating. I haven't tried that one yet, but Swamphead has been doing a great job, you know, with breweries being closed, but still able to sell packaged beverages of kind of doing different twists on their usual ones. And I have the same thing. So I've got a um, uh, this is a midnight oil, which is their mm -hmm. stout, but it has a twist that it's got vanilla coconut added to the normal oatmeal coffee flavor. And it's surprisingly really good i thought it might be overbearing but it's um i would also give it a 4.25 so i think Swamphead did a really good job this week of yeah. releasing some new beers that are a little bit different um well um you know thank you to marvin um for sharing your voice with us and with our viewers um we do strongly believe that your voice is an important one and that the financial voices should be shared a lot more often than they are um because um, you know, we just think that's a whole perspective that's missing out there. Um, we, um, you know, our goal is to help you tell that financial story each week through the News and Brews series. Um, so please tune in each week on Thursday afternoons for new videos that are available to you on demand on, on our website at any time after they premiere. Um, so if you're not able to make it at uh, 4.30 Eastern each Thursday, it'll be there um, when it is a convenient time for you to watch it. And, you know, please, um, send us an email if you have any ideas for future topics or if you would like to join us on a future week for news and brews. Um, and in, in the meantime, as we hear breaking news, because it's breaking every day, um, you can follow us on Twitter and um, see how things are rapidly evolving until you can catch us again next week. Um, thanks again for tuning in and um, go Jackets. And go Jackets. Cheers. Thank you guys. Yeah. <laughs>